take your Bibles and let's turn together to the book of James. And we are in James chapter 4 this morning. And I made a mistake when I sent in the order of service. We were actually supposed to read verses 13 through 17, uh, not James 4, 10 to 12. That's what we covered last week. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to invite you to look at this text of Scripture. We're going to read it together so that we can uh, think about this passage. And of course, verses 10 through 12 kind of is, is, is the front side of flowing into what we'll talk about this morning. But James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 is the text we'll be looking at. Here's what God's Word says. Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin." The passage that we're looking at this morning is a passage that I think that we're all very familiar with. We know the statement, what is your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. We know the statement, we should say, if the Lord wills. But I want you to understand that what James is communicating in this passage of Scripture is a lot more than simply adding this trite statement on the end of anything that we do. Say, well, Lord willing, if the Lord wills, such and such will take place. In fact, it's very common in some cultures to use such an expression. For instance, when we lived overseas in the culture where we were ministering, it was very common for people to say something like this, well, God willing, such and such will take place. Well, that's a great statement. It's true. But the fact is, sometimes we can make statements like that so often that we don't really consider the weight and the significance of what we're saying. It's sort of like at the end of our prayers, we kind of tack on, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, your kids learn this, they don't even know what you're saying. And the question is, why is it that when we pray, we often close our prayers in such a way? Is it even necessary to express that statement, in Jesus' name, amen? Well, the fact is we're making that statement expressing, hopefully expressing, that we understand the only reason that we have the right to come into God's presence and to speak directly to the Father is because we come through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we are praying, we are expressing at the end of our prayer, we understand we don't have the right to come into your presence except for Christ. And so we close our prayer in such a way. But how many of you actually think that when you make that statement? How many of us, when we use the statement, God willing, we actually are thinking about what is being communicated in these verses? Well, you may ask the question, what exactly is James trying to communicate in the verses that we're reading this morning? Well, let me give you a simple summary statement. And from that, we're going to get into a series of of truths that will help us to think biblically about this issue of how we plan for the future. A summary statement is this, the following passage warns us to be guarded against pride's subtle expression in the common sin of presumption. You might say, well, pastor, what does it mean to be presumptuous? 
Well, the idea is that we plan and we believe internally that what we've decided to do, we can follow through with it. We tend to use this this word presumption we're talking about sin, where it's as if we know that God forbids something, but instead of us refraining from doing it, we say, well, I'm just going to assume that God will be merciful, He'll be kind, you know, God forgives, and so I'll just go ahead, I'll make this decision. Whatever happens, happens. I know that God's really kind, and He's just going to kind of excuse this. That's a presumptuous sin. Well, in the context that we're talking about, presumption has the idea of choosing to think as if we can control the circumstances of the future. I hope that if there's anything we've taken away from 2020, it's that we have no ability, no ability as individuals, as families, as a church, as a culture, as a nation, we have zero ability to control our future. We really don't. We have people that will say, here's when things will be normal again. They don't have a clue when it's going to be normal. They don't. Oh, we know that we'll be in this position at this time. You don't really know that. If there's anything that we've learned from 2020, that life is extremely unpredictable. But God already knows. God's in control. He's accomplishing what he's going to accomplish. And the reality is that when we think about the future, we need to kind of humble ourselves in God's presence and acknowledge and recognize, not just in our words, but in the way that we think about the decisions that we plan to make in the future, that really our future is entirely in God's hands. You cannot add a day to your life. You can't add an inch to your height. We can all add pounds to our weight, but we have zero ability to control our future in the sense that James is talking about here. God wants us to see this morning that we must approach every moment of our lives with humility and diligence. Humility and diligence. That's really the sense of the passage in front of us. So the question we want to answer this morning is how can we do that? How can we be a people that approach life every moment with humility and and diligence. Well, the first truth we're going to find in the passage in front of us is that pride can reveal itself very subtly in the way that we plan. Now, some of us might say, well, check that box off. I don't plan. I just do whatever comes up. So I'm okay. Let's kind of set that thinking to the side. We're going to see in just a moment that that's not the way that we should approach life. But the majority of us, or many of us, are people who are diligent planners. Now, that doesn't mean we always execute our plans well, but we think a lot about the future. We think about what we want to do. We think about what we're going to do. We are passionate about what we believe we can accomplish in our futures. I want you to realize that the Bible teaches in the passage in front of us that one of the subtlest ways that pride reveals itself is in how we plan for the future. Notice what the Scripture tells us in verses 13 and 14. He says, Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. He says, There are people that believe they can control their future. Don't be one of them. Let me give you a couple of biblical warnings of people who thought in such a way, and they are harsh examples for us 
to be warned of this kind of thinking. The first person is the king Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a very powerful man. He was the strongest leader of the time in which he lived. He was incredibly wealthy. He controlled huge, vast amounts of resources. He dominated many world cultures. He was a strong, powerful, influential leader. He loved to build and he loved to destroy and rebuild it with his own culture and ways. And in Daniel chapter 4, the Bible tells us that one day Nebuchadnezzar walked out and he looked across this vast city that he was ruling And he said the following, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power, for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. The most powerful man in the world just got pushed down like that. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, one day he wanted to address this issue of covetousness. And covetousness is a a sin that digs into our heart, and ultimately what it does is it reveals that I value things, stuff that I can hold in my hands that I can look at, that I can use, that I can use to control people for power. I put value on stuff more than I do God and people. And so when Jesus is addressing this sin of the heart of covetousness, he talks about a man who was very wealthy. And in the story, the man looks at everything that he has and the abundance of his wealth that he has prospered in so many ways. And he says the following, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? And God said, you think you're going to sit in your house and you're going to party the rest of your life. Guess what? You're wrong. In Acts chapter 12, there was a man named Herod. He was a powerful and very arrogant king, as were most of the kings in the ancient world, might I add. And this day, and one day, Herod was standing before the people. It's kind of an interesting story if you study it, not just from the biblical history, but you were to study it from, from uh, history of the historians of the day talking about Herod. And he's standing in front of this great group of people, and the people were trying to kind of like make this man feel really good so that he would be kindly disposed towards them. They knew he was a man that was very, very arrogant, along with being very powerful. And so as Herod stands there arrayed in royal apparel and sits upon his throne, he made an ordination and the people shouted, it is the voice of a God, not a man. I wonder what was going on in that man's head the moment that he heard this this cry. It's like someone who's standing in the arena, they've just won the gold medal. Somebody who is receiving the Lombardi Trophy at the Super Bowl. For the seventh time. (laughs) The seventh time. And they receive that and people are cheering and they are rejoicing. 
What's going through a person's mind? I'll never know, and neither will you. (laughs) But you can only imagine. This man, Herod, was feeling that kind of elation. And it says, as he in arrogance looked out over the crowd, the Lord smote him, because he gave not glory to God, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. By the way, if you look at secular history, that's true. That's what happened. I want you to realize that the most powerful people that have ever lived cannot control their future. The most powerful people that have ever lived. And you and I will never rise to the power of a Nebuchadnezzar or of a Herod or of a Tom Brady. We'll never be there. Yet we act as if we can. And I want you to realize that the Bible says that is very, very foolish. And not just foolish, it's, it's dangerous to live that way. Two very simple observations about what James says here. The first is that the passage calls us to repentance. The word repent means that our thinking has to change. It means the way that we're looking at decisions is wrong, and it needs to be rebuked, and we need to be humbled, and we need to think right. He says, go to now ye that say, this is how you think, this is how you communicate, this is how you plan. He says, you need to stop. Number two, it calls us to see our absolute inability to perfectly predict or control our future. He says, ye know not what shall be on the morrow. You might hope that this is what's going to happen. You might tell people and project strength and confidence at how things will unfold in the future, but you cannot control it. Let me give you a couple of common ways that people that don't know God and reject His authority and reject His sovereignty approach the future. The first is fear. Lots and lots of people are terrified. And when I say people that don't know God, lots of Christians actually approach life this way as well. Fear. Indecision that cripples them because they don't know the unknown. They recognize they don't know what's going to take place. They can't control what's going to take place. So in terror, they don't do anything. I'm sure nobody in here has ever been in that stage before. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, wherewithal shall ye be clothed. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, your heavenly Father knoweth what ye have need of, that ye have need of all these things. And so Jesus basically says, don't face the unknown in fear. There's a God in heaven who's sovereign. He's in control. He's good. He's wise. You can trust him to take care of you. But the world doesn't recognize that. A second approach is the careless approach. The, the, the approach that Solomon talks about in Proverbs as the foolish approach, the laser approach, the simple approach. In Proverbs 27, 12, it says that the prudent man foreseeth evil. He sees something is coming. He plans. He hides himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. The idea is they don't plan. They just go with whatever's there and they get crushed in the process. The Bible doesn't teach us to be people who are careless, who approach life without planning, without preparation. But the Bible talks about the kind of planning we are to engage in, the kind of preparation that we're going to engage in. And we're going to talk in just a moment about the kind of preparation we're supposed to have. 
But then there's a third. It's the presumptuous approach. And that's really the approach that's being talked about in the passage in front of us. It's this arrogant self-confidence that really flows out of a worldly wisdom. I can control my destiny kind of like the way that Nebuchadnezzar thought. Kind of like the way that Herod thought. Kind of like the way the rich man in Jesus' illustration thought. Maybe the way that we think sometimes as well. James 14.3 says, Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a place. Continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Well, number one, do you know how long you'll be able to be in that place? No. Do you know if your industry is going to actually prosper? No. Do you know what's going to take place in the city? The answer is, of course not. You might go to the city and not last a year. You might go to the city and actually end up seeing your business collapse and crumble. You do not know. How can you go into this decision believing this is going to happen and having the confidence that it will? He said, you can't. It's presumptuous. And so James tells us, God's word tells us, don't approach the future in fear or carelessly or presumptuously. Instead, we need to be humbled with a Christ-centered approach. And that's really what the text in front of us is going to tell us to have. In James chapter 4, verse 15, he says, You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or do that. The idea is that there is to be a humble planning with a submission to God and a trust in His good hand. In Proverbs chapter 16, Solomon taught his kids how to approach decisions in this kind of a way. For instance, in Proverbs 16, 1, he says that the preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And what he taught his children is that God is going to work in us so that he gives us desires that are consistent with what he says are right and what he says are wrong. And so we're going to follow his moral will. And he's going to actually work in us in a sovereign way. He talks about God's sovereignty. God is the one who actually directs a person's heart. Proverbs 16, verse 3 says, We are to commit our works unto the Lord, and our thoughts will be established. And the idea is that as you make decisions, doing what you believe is right, consistent with what God's will is, consistent with how God is leading and working in your life, you are to humbly commit to God your plans. The idea is you recognize, I think I could be wrong. I'm planning, but I don't know what lays, lies before me. I recognize that while I'm supposed to plan, God's the one who prospers. God's the one who lifts up. God's the one who puts down. God is the one who ultimately is in charge, not me. My plans are at his disposal. And then in verse 9, he says that a man's heart devises this way, but the Lord directeth his steps. The idea is that we can move forward with a confidence that as we make decisions, God orders those steps according to his wisdom and according to his ways and according to his power. And so what we do is we make decisions with God at the front of our decisions. We plan with a submission to his authority. We recognize his right to move and change and direct as he chooses to do. You see, we're not supposed to live life haphazardly, but we're supposed to plan in humility. 
And that's really the sense of the text in front of us. Planning with a submission to God's ways. The second truth that we find in this passage is that our lives are very short and uncertain. Do I really need to say that? Proverbs 4, or James 4 verse 14 says, what is your life? In fact, sometimes we should just pause and ask the question, what is my life? How long is it going to last? I don't know. What am I going to accomplish in my life? I don't know. How are people going to remember me when I'm gone? I don't know. There's a lot you don't know. He says, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. You think about during that time of the year when the bay is still kind of cold and the air is starting to get kind of warm and you come out to the shoreline early in the morning and there's a fog everywhere. You know what I'm talking about? But about 10 o'clock, guess what? It's all gone. You can't go across the bay. You can't drive across that bridge without being a little bit nervous. Maybe you shouldn't even do it. It wouldn't be prudent. But by 10 o'clock, it's gone. And that's how your life is, and that's how my life is. It appears for a little while, and then it's gone. Doesn't mean that it isn't important. It doesn't mean that it doesn't affect people. It doesn't mean that there isn't an eternal significance, but it's short. It doesn't last very long. It's one of the reasons that life is so precious, so important that we cherish it, that we don't waste the days that we're given. In Proverbs 14, verses 1 and 2, it says, Man who, who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. It's like when you cut a flower to examine its beauty, guess what? It's dying in your hand. And that's how our lives are. You cut the grass in the summer, and all those little clippings are dried up and withered in just a short period of time. You put all this money into making your grass look beautiful, and by July it was a waste of money. (laughs) Anybody ever done that? And he says, you know what? Man's beauty and glory are like that. Psalm 90, verses 10 and 12, he says that the days of our years are threescore and ten. That would be seventy. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, that's eighty, yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, I won't read the whole section. I would encourage you to read it because it is a poetic description of what will happen to all of us as our strength diminishes and as our bodies and minds age. In Ecclesiastes 12, 1, he says, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. You know, there's going to be a day when we look at our life and we realize, I don't have the strength to do the things I used to do. I'm not as mentally sharp as I used to be. There are people that are a lot younger than me who I bounced on their knee when they were a baby, and now they could do things I can't do. I used to be a lot stronger than they were. I used to be 
the top of whatever I was doing, but I can't do it anymore. You cannot go back and correct what you lost. That's what he's saying. He's saying you better seize your youth, the opportunities of life, and the strength that you have, and the intelligence you have, and the wisdom that you have. You had better channel it in the right direction when you have it, because one day you'll regret it and you can't change it. And really that's, again, in the sense of the James passage, that life is precious, but it's short. I'll summarize it this way. Our time is short and uncertain. Our strength and our beauty are fleeting. Time is an extremely valuable gift from God, but lots of us waste it. And we waste it often. And then it leaves us with regrets. We have a third truth in this text, and that is that we need to make plans with the words, if God. Now, when I say we need to make plans with the words, if God, I don't mean like, tack it on and you're good. I mean that when you make your plans, you really think, if God, this is what I'm purposed to do, this is what I believe I'm supposed to do, this is the direction I'm channeling my energies, but God knows, and I don't. He says it this way in verse 15, For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. What you can see is that James is telling us to plan, but to recognize that our plans are under his authority. Now, we all know what it's like when we were, you know, teenagers, if you're past that time period, when we used to hate having to go to mom and dad and say, is it okay if I, you know what I'm talking about? Because you always knew that the answer could be no. And you've already decided what you want to do and you believe you have the right to do it and you're excited about it and you say, hey, is it okay if? And you get shot down. It's like, here we go again. Nobody likes to submit their plans and their desires to somebody else's jurisdiction. Yet, that is how we are to live our lives. God has the right to say no. And God has the right to say, wait. God has the right to divert our plans and to disrupt our purposes. Even David, when he had a desire to build the temple, he goes to Nathan the prophet and he says, I have this this passion, this burden to build the temple for God. And Nathan said, do what's in your heart. The next day he had to come back to David and say, I was wrong. God said no. He has reasons. Here are his reasons. Your son Solomon will build it instead of you. But God says no. Folks, we have to learn to live our lives with a submission to God's ways. God disrupts our plans many times, and he absolutely has the right to do it. And we don't have the right to, in anger, say, who are you to do such a thing? By the way, when our plans are not thwarted and our plans prosper, you know what the the sense should always be? God, thank you for letting me do this. Thank you for giving me the strength and the wisdom to do this. God, it was all of you. That should be the sense of how we live our lives. The phrase does not eliminate our personal responsibility. It keeps us humble. It shapes our expectations. It reminds us that God, not me, is ultimately at the center of my plans. 
Folks, it's not just about where we end up, but it's about how we get there. It's not just about what we do, but it's about why we do it. And so those two words, if God, three words, wills. Those words are so important. Truth number four, we see that worldly thinking sees self-confidence as a virtue when it should be seen as a vice. Let me say that again. Worldly thinking sees self-confidence as a virtue when it should be seen as a vice. In verse 16, he says, But now ye rejoice in your boasting. All such rejoicing is evil. What do you think he's saying there? Let me put it in real simple words. You are glorying in your pride. You are glorying in your pride. You're rejoicing in the fact that you think you control your life. You are celebrating self-confidence as a virtue when God calls it a vice. It's actually sin. It's arrogant. It's proud. And so he says, humble yourself. You know, it's really interesting. When we read the book of James, we see that there's a contrast between the way of those who know God and are walking with God and the way of those who don't know God and are not walking with God. And what's very interesting is when you look at the two sides, you know what is really deep down at the roots of all these various expressions of the way of God's people versus the way of those who reject God? Deep, deep down in the heart, the root cause of all these expressions is pride or humility. The believer says, this is a God-centered world. The world says, this is a me-centered world. One says, I have to submit to God's ways. The other one says, everybody submits to my ways. Three common worldly counsels. Do what's in your heart because what's in your heart defines who you really are. That's what the world tells you. Have confidence in yourself because you are the master of your fate and the captain of your soul written many years ago, but still the thinking of our day. Don't let somebody who's older and wiser and has been through life longer than you have hold you back from expressing yourself. That is the viewpoint of the age, is it not? We like to be our own boss. Yet God says that's an arrogant way to live life. I want you to realize what's interesting about those three different statements is that there is an element of truth, but it's been twisted. God doesn't teach us to live through life without any confidence. He teaches us to live life with a confidence in Him, not in ourselves. God teaches us to take life from a different angle. Let me give you an example of the way that God would counsel us in opposition to the way the world counsels us. Instead of do what's in your heart because because what's in your heart defines you, God says pursue what you enjoy to the glory of God because God created you with unique gifts, interests, and He wants you to use them for His glory. God has shaped us individually. God does give different gifts to different people in the church. He does it by His sovereign purposes. Not everybody in the church has the same spiritual gifts. Not everyone in the church has the same aptitudes. Not everyone in the church has the same backgrounds. God puts us all together in this body so that we work together in dependence on Him and interconnected with one another. So what you can see is that the element of truth in the world's thinking has been twisted and it needs to be corrected to a godly viewpoint. 
the statement, have confidence in yourself because you're the master of your own fate, the captain of your own soul. God says, be decisive because you're pursuing this course of action to God's glory and in obedience to his clear commands and according to the principles of scripture, but do it with a humility before him. Rejoice in God's sovereignty. Rejoice in the fact that sometimes God does frustrate your plans. He has something different to accomplish through you. Rejoice in the fact that God actually disrupts the plans of those who have evil intentions. And that God is the one who blesses the labors of the righteous according to what he desires to accomplish. I want you to realize that God wants us to be planners. But he wants us to be humble planners. God wants us to be diligent, but he wants our energies to be focused in ways that he says are right and wholesome and for his glory. Worldly thinking sees self-confidence as a virtue, it's a vice. And the fifth truth we're going to find this morning is that we need to redeem the time that we're given. The idea is use it appropriately. Don't waste it. Don't look back at a season of life and say, boy, I wish I would have used my mind and my strength and my energies for that, but now I can't and I wasted it. Don't do that. He puts it this way in verse 17, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. It means redeem the time. If you know what's right, do it. If you know what's right as a dad, do it. If you know what's right as a mother, do it. If you know what's right as a church member, do it. If you know what is right as a person who owns a business and runs a business and has people that you employ, do right. If you know what is right as somebody who is under authority, do right. Redeem the time. Use your time wisely for the glory of God. So let me give you very simple, practical, biblical motivation for how we look at time. Number one, because our time is short and uncertain. Because our strength and our beauty is fleeting. And because our time is extremely valuable as a gift from God. Turn away from sin and pursue a life consecrated to God. That is really the crux and the point of this passage. When you plan, plan as if God is in charge, not you. When God disrupts your plans, bend your will and submit to him, recognizing he has the right to do it in his ways. Folks, pride is, is, a, is a vice that plagues all of us. We tend to see the vice when it hurts us personally. When somebody misspeaks to us. When somebody is abusive in the way they relate to us. When a person is dishonest. We tend to think of pride's evil in those contexts. But we do not think of pride in the way that is expressed in relation to God. And God calls us in this passage to do exactly that. To see how pride expresses itself, not just in how we relate to other people, but how we relate to Him. God wants us to approach every moment with humility and with diligence. I want to encourage you to see presumption as a vice to be put to death, not a virtue to be celebrated. The Scriptures want us not only to see that, but to pursue what we enjoy to the glory of God. Because he created us with unique gifts and interests that he wants us to use for his glory, not our own. 
God's Word wants us to be decisive because we are pursuing this course of action for His glory and obedience to His will and according to the principles of Scripture, not because it's just what's in our heart and we want to do it. Let's rejoice in God's sovereignty where He frustrates the plans of the wicked, yet He blesses the labors of the righteous. Sometimes He frustrates our plans because He has other plans in the works. Folks, let's be a people who are submitted to God in His ways. I want to encourage you from this text to be that. Let's bow together for a word of prayer and ask the Lord to help us. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask you just a question or two. The first question is this. Is there a person who this morning as you thought about this passage of Scripture, you realized something? Life is short, And I am not prepared to meet God when it ends. That's just a very simple statement. Life is short, and I'm not prepared to meet God when it ends. It might be you. This is not a gospel message. This was a message to the believer. But you may realize this morning you're not ready to meet God. If you died today, you don't know what would happen, and you're concerned about it. If you don't know for certain that you're saved and you're ready to meet the Lord, I want to encourage you, don't leave this meeting this morning without getting the answer to that question. How can I be right with God? Is there anybody here this morning that say, Pastor, that's me. I'm not ready to meet God. I don't know what would happen to me if I were to die. And I'm concerned about that and I need to talk to somebody so they can show me from the Bible how I can have the confidence that I'm saved. Is there anybody that would quietly, eyes are closed, raise your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I don't know for sure that I'm saved and I need to talk to somebody. Give you just a moment. Anybody at all. You may not feel comfortable raising your hand and I can understand that. But if you don't know that for certain, I want to encourage you, don't leave here today without speaking to me or to another person at the church and say, hey, I don't know for sure that I'm saved. I need to get this question answered. Second question is, is there somebody here this morning that would say, Pastor, I'm saved, but man, I never looked at my presumption as a vice, my self-confidence as sin, but God showed me that this morning. And I want to see my plans the way that God wants me to see them. So pray for me. I needed that this morning. Anybody like that would raise their hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I I don't approach plans the way that I should. I've been approaching it presumptuously, not humbly, and I need to submit my ways to the Lord. I see that. I'll be praying for you with that. Let's bow together for a word of prayer and ask the Lord to help us to respond properly to this text of Scripture. Father, I thank you for those in our congregation, and I'm sure people who have joined on the live stream and perhaps will watch this at a later date, who this message has touched their heart. They have seen, maybe for the first time, or they've been reminded, life is short, and the way they've approached the future is in fact very presumptuous and very proud. I pray that you'd help all of us to be humbled, that we would submit our ways to you, that we wouldn't be crippled in fear, that we wouldn't presume and arrogance, 
but that we would humble ourselves before you and prepare for the future with an awareness that you are in control and not us. Father, help us to be diligent in redeeming the time, every moment that we are given. And I pray that you'd help us to move forward in a right way as a result of what we've seen this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.